Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thanks very much for joining this uh, episode of Wealth Talks. Uh, today, we're discussing the family office fraud. Now, I'm Zach Lucas, partner with Spencer West uh, LLP, and I'm joined today by three panelists. Uh, first is Mitun Ghosh, um, Group Chief Risk Officer of Taurus Wealth. Uh, Taurus Wealth is a multifamily office with offices in uh, Europe, Middle East, as well as in Asia. Uh, they manage in the, in the region of about three billion worth of assets under advisement. We're also um, happily joined by Stephen Banfield, partner with KPMG in Singapore. Uh, Stephen heads up their private client, uh, uh, private wealth department there, as well as doing family office work. And then lastly, I'm very, very happy to be joined by David Brownbill at King's Council, uh, 24 old buildings based in London, to discuss some of the aspects on um, the fraud and the family offices that we'll discuss at the end. Now, today's agenda, we'll, we'll first start out by setting the scene of the industry as it stands at the moment. So we'll look at family offices and financial risk management. And here, Mitten will, will help to, to, to guide us through where we are in terms of the industry and in terms of the family office growth and what this is leading to in terms of their investment proclivity for private equity deals. We'll also then look more carefully at the private equity investment, the financial due diligence that can go into this if family offices opt to do this. And, and Stephen will help me to, to run through typically what would happen on a mandate to look into uh, the, the offering of either a fund, an indirect investment, or a direct uh, investment into a operating business. And finally, um, David and I will discuss the uh, financial fraud legal consequences. And here, we're really looking at the, the fallout that can occur uh, once you unfortunately have invested into maybe a Ponzi scheme or something that uh, was uh, maybe uh, not what it seemed when you first invested. And we'll talk about some of the remedies and the differences between uh, parties that are either net winners, so they've actually been able to extract value before the fraud was discovered, or alternatively, and more, more uh, reasonably, the, the ones that are actually net losers, where they're actually going to lose out on the investment. Now, before I get started on the, the main discussion points, as always with these wealth talks, this is a, uh, a, an honest discussion between practitioners about the industry and about what's going on and shouldn't be taken as constituting any way legal advice and shouldn't be relied upon as constituting legal advice. So it's just uh, ex freely expressed views about what's going on in the industry and, and should be relied on in that way. Okay, so looking at the financial risk management, I think the first thing I would, I would, I would advise to talk about is the emergence of single family offices you're lucky because you're, you, you sit in Dubai, but also you have coverage into Southeast Asia and Singapore. So you're getting to see the both of the, the limbs that, that occur. And just looking at what's trending, because I think this will set the scene for, for everything that follows in the single family office uh, space and the typologies. And here, I'm, what I mean by this is that the, the difference between the, the families that come in as an investment office, particularly, and sometimes in, in Singapore we see a migration aspect, so it could be a migration office to that extent. And then the, the large families, the actual multi-generation, multi-branch families that come in. I wonder if you can just uh, give us, an, give us uh, and share your thoughts on the type of family offices that are trending and are actually uh, occurring in, the, in both the regions that you cover. Um, thanks, uh, Zach. So I, I think 
you touched on a very crucial aspect there. It's it's um, uh, important not to make generalizations given the sort of variety we have in the space. Um, so they come in different shapes and sizes at one end of the spectrum when it comes to single family offices. You have extremely sophisticated setups, um, uh, very professional individuals manning different desks or different or focusing on different asset classes or investment opportunities with sufficient analyst backup uh, systems at their disposal, including legal and compliance search engines for background verification, what have you. Uh, I mean, the kind of setup that could put mid-sized uh, institutions to uh, shame. Uh, whereas at the other end of the spectrum, you could have very rudimentary setups, two or three trusted persons of the principal, essentially running a, uh, essentially focusing on coordination by cultivating a network of network on the sales side, uh, and then representing the buy side interests of their principal, right? So and and then you have everything in between. Um, now, when it comes to private markets in specific, um, I. I probably just stating the obvious here, but you know the risk sets are extremely unique compared to the public markets. Uh, you have your performance risk, which is not just based on, you don't have the benefit of uh, extrapolating off a lot of history of performance or, or fundamentals that are more obvious through um, you know, audited reportings and what have you. Um, but you could have a lot of opportunities that you're looking at that are disruptive in nature or, or uh, you know, very tech-oriented propositions, mm. uh, which require deeper sort of domain knowledge as to the value proposition that they're addressing, et cetera. And, and you're e essentially assessing future potential and not reading off any history necessarily. So that requires a different approach. Uh, vis-a-vis uh, -vis public markets. There's liquidity risks, there's regulatory risks. I think settlement risks are a very key part given that oftentimes for the smaller or modestly sized family offices, you're not necessarily getting directly to the company, but you're accessing these through various channel structures, et cetera, right? Yes, and, and the we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. I was just thinking in terms of the, the, the family office spread, Right. where do we actually see the growth? Is it going to be within clients that have over 30 million but below 150 million or where is the actual growth coming from in the in the single family office market from your perspective because i think that then leads into the resourcing and the environment that they have to manage risk but what, what do you actually see uh, in terms of investment focus you mean Zach? no no I, I mean just in terms of the 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 size of the family offices that are able to be established um are they it's over 500 million it's, or where, where is it in terms of Zach, our experiences it's a mixed bag right so the right. larger ones um, are sort of uh, we do see a fair bit of geographical expansion on their part for the larger yeah. ones so we, we do see uh, singapore set up offices also trying to gain a presence in the middle east and vice versa or be it up in europe and uh, we have uh, we do see sufficient proliferation across both markets of the smaller more modestly sized family offices coming into being yeah. uh, constant discussion for us because we always get into where they're sort of undecided and they come to us more by way of uh, you know helping them incubate their models etc mm. um, it always becomes a discussion about the benefits of a multi family office versus a single family office at that level of the scale yeah, right, right. So, right. 
So, okay. uh, and, and we do help a lot of these single family offices that are starting off, uh, help mm. them incubate basically, uh, leverage our skill sets while they're uh, learning the ropes, so to say. Right, right. And in terms of the direct investment trends that you're seeing, you, you mentioned earlier around public equity versus private equity. Right. There's right. been a number of surveys that have been released recently by, by prominent um, private banks. It kind of gives the image that there is a continued commitment to private equity um, uh, uh, investing by single family offices. Is that something that you're seeing as a trend? Absolutely. Um, uh, however, uh, there are some mixed noises around that. And again, it goes back to the size and scale of the, the family office uh, platform, right? Um, essentially, we, some of these studies that you're alluding to, if you if you drill, drill in a bit deeper into what kind of sample set they've used, for those that have used uh, larger family offices, uh, typically 2 billion upwards of average AUM under management, etc., it seems to be a very distinct trend that uh, private markets continue to be an area of focus. Right. Uh, one such study which dealt with the larger family offices put current allocations at about 25 percent and growing yeah whereas if you look at other studies which have a more representative mix of family offices that are probably managing uh, downwards of 500 million mm. uh, you see the corresponding allocation go down to 15 percent and probably a little more muted in terms of their optimism in allocating more aggressively to the space right to the space right so it tends to be a mixed bag. I, I think a lot of it also for some of the more modestly sized family offices depends on their going in positions into 2022, their investment mandate, so to say. Yes. So for those who have uh, sort of bore the brunt of the corrections in the public markets and are feeling it, yeah, a little more defensive when it comes to public markets, they're not too certain that uh, again, price discovery is a different animal in the public, in the private space versus the public space. So they're not too sure that discount factors have caught up in terms of the, the degree of correction witnessed in the public markets in the private space. Again, uh, mm. it's very discreet, uh, private uh, discovery, price discovery in the private market space. And uh, again, sort of given the corrections that we have seen on certain counters in public markets, they're not too sure that for a reasonable investment horizon, uh, a midterm horizon, where the public market opportunities don't sort of throw up the same risk reward. So right. again, depending on the size, the investment mandate, yeah. the existing allocations and performance that they're sitting yeah. on, yeah. the discussion could be a bit more varied than that. Right, right. And in terms of the, 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 the average sort of single family office, what do we tend to see? I know that there's a range, right? But um, in terms of the growth area, surveys will show that you know we've got this little bulge going on with family offices that have below 500 million in investments. And the question that comes up is how many of them can actually afford in-house professionals as against effectively outsourcing or relying on their network to provide a CIO, CRO function? Is, are, you, are you seeing the same thing that the, that the, the bulge in the, the family office market, the, the mid-sized ones, um, cannot afford to have um, on staff frontline professionals and, and tend to rely on their networks in terms of managing risk and, and assessing opportunities. Is that a correct description? I, I, I would subscribe to that view. Right. Uh, so for the smaller sized uh, family offices, there's definitely, I mean, it all boils down to cost benefit, right? Um, the selection process also tends to be, you know, um, 
I, I dare say there's definitely the personality of the principles that comes through in terms of the resourcing. Uh, oftentimes when you're setting out uh, from a small scale, the decision is between a trusted resource versus a specialist and, and the two need not meet up in the same person. Um, so, you know, you're essentially relying on limited resources to yeah. cultivate the necessary networks. And, and, you know, that's where the focus should be shifting when it comes to risk management off the back of that sort of minimal resourcing. Mm. It really boils down to which partners you're engaging, yeah. uh, uh, whether you have access to special, specialist due diligence uh, skill sets, where yeah. it is warranted, where you're looking to take a reasonable uh, sort mm. of access. Are you leveraging platforms that afford aggregation and therefore allow you to diversify sufficiently when it comes to your exposure to direct investments? All of that comes into play. Yeah. So it's all about cultivating the right partners around you and uh, not necessarily, uh, I mean, relationships at the end of the day form a very critical part of it, but to have some filtration mechanism to, uh, to you know, review the deal flow that you're seeing from your close yeah. So, so what would be the, the the average AUM under under management or the size of the family office where you can actually afford <clears throat> to have a, a chief risk officer involved and frontline CIOs and what would what would it tend to be? Is it, are you looking at over five hundred million, a billion? Where does it end up in terms of being able to actually afford professionals to come in? I think I think some segregation of roles and responsibilities you start seeing above the 500 million dollar mark right. below that you typically see resources or or individuals wearing multiple hats and yeah. and leveraging off partner networks or specialist service providers more actively than otherwise right uh, um, so i i mean it, the experience could actual experience could vary but 500 million would be sort of a representative figure from our experience i mean just just going through from a risk management strategy that you see SFOs adopting generally, and then comparing that with an MFO approach to risk management and then the industry generally. So looking at the private banks and maybe some EAMs, et cetera. What do we see in terms of the single family office as distinct? Because we, we've talked about the fact that there are a lot of single family offices. They're probably not at the 500 million mark. So they're having to rely on their networks, but do they actually have a risk management strategy in place or is it just basically relying on the confidence of the people that they're involved with um, through their sort of value network or how, how does it actually end up and you're, you obviously are a prominent MFO how do you manage the opportunities that come along um, for your own because they, they will obviously be passed on to to your own client base that's a great question Zach now to me uh, I think a good starting point is to be absolutely honest about what your capabilities are versus your own limitations mm -hmm. so Say, and I can speak for Taurus with uh, more confidence than uh, when alluding to others, but uh, in our instance, whilst we know we have deep expertise in global market asset classes and, and various paths to markets when it comes to public markets, mm. we know we don't necessarily have the wherewithal to do a diligent top-down study on an ongoing basis, identifying opportunities that are of value to clients and bringing them to market, right? Uh, we're, we're not a private equity house, typically requires a different set of skills and, and specialization when it comes to that. Yeah. Now, shown a deal, do we have the wherewithal to review it, due diligence, et cetera? Yes, but the whole point is in terms of sourcing the right sort of long listing it correctly, right? And that's 
where we spend a lot of our due diligence efforts on cultivating a network of trusted partners, right? right People right. understand uh, the generic risk appetite when it comes to our client base in this space, et cetera, right? So oh. one is due diligencing at the level of the partners itself, what kind of access they have, various criteria comes into play there. Mm -hmm. um, track record, uh, yeah. cap table status, uh, yeah. co-investment partners and, and yeah. all of that, right? Yeah. Um, and is it, is it probably the case that you have to adopt that approach because the, the cost of actually doing personalized individual due diligence would be just disproportionate? And that that seems to be the problem is again again it's very context specific. Typically, yeah. in the in the in the context of a multifamily office, given that primarily where where about asset allocation on a managed or advised basis for our clients, right? At the end of the day, private equity forms a allocation within yes. the group portfolios, and that also on a suitable and appropriate basis, yes. where risk appetite doesn't warrant there literally be zero allocation to private markets in a particular client portfolio, right? So it's part of our activity set, which requires a deep set of skills, deeper set of skills. And um, so if, if the business happens to be a private equity specialist oriented or focused business and, and their um, reason to be is, is entirely to do with private markets, that sort of from a cost benefit perspective would justify maintaining resources entirely along those lines. Right, right. Skill sets, right? In terms of the general market at large, so the, 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 the sort of financial services sector generally, um, have you seen anything where there is a heightened level of due diligence on the risks of fraud, the risk of a Ponzi scheme, the risk of actually the, the, the books not actually working out when it comes to private equity? Have you seen any of the, the operators in the market space that systematically um, go through this in a, in, a, in, a, in a way which is not networked, but actually they, they go at the due diligence in a personal way? Have you seen any so, of that? So, uh, Zach, I mean... I, I touched on the first layer of due diligence would essentially be about cultivating the right partners. Yeah. Um, a very a critical, very second part of due diligence on our part as, as a fiduciary responsibility to the clients to whom we're bringing these opportunities is yeah. around due diligencing the access structures. Yes. Are there sufficient independent checks and controls, um, background checks of all the controlling persons? Are right. there administrators? Are there auditors? What is the valuation policy? Right, right. Anyway, around that again, all the risks in this space are essentially exacerbated by the information asymmetry, right? Versus yeah, public yeah. markets, and um, there, you know, a critical part of our partnerships or or reliance is is around the quality of information that they typically have access to. Exactly. Your your, your diligence can only be as good as the information you have access to, and, right. and we often walk away from opportunities that seem great on the face of it. Yes. Purely because we don't have a sense of comfort having come by too limited information, right? right. And we're happy to let that go rather than bring it to our clients and, and right. or qualify the risk uh, inordinately, right? So, right. so that's the second part. And the third part really is, it goes back to Finance 101, where, uh, you know, and I'm not talking necessarily about the large offices which can afford sizable tickets and, and allocations where they're confident about the opportunity on the back of their own due diligence, but for the smaller offices or even our high net worth clients who utilize us as a multifamily office directly, um, uh, a lot of the effort we expend is on affording structures that allow for sufficient diversification. 
So yeah. you, you, you don't, if, you're, if you've got a $20 million exposure to private markets, you don't necessarily want to put a million dollar ticket into one single name. Yeah. Uh, as good as that opportunity might look to you. Yeah. So a lot yeah. of our advice is around limiting that and allowing for our clients to participate in good opportunities yeah. for as little as 100,000 above. Right, right. I think just to, to, to wrap up on this, the if we were just, you know, there will be professionals that are, are watching, have tuned in, that are involved in the SFO market. Uh, risk management may be something that they are not thinking about. It's a bit like cybersecurity. It's another thing that perhaps is not elevated to a, to a level yet until it happens, right? And then it then it's the, the number one thing. Absolutely. But if we were looking at it from the risk management evaluation side, key pitfalls and best practices, just generally, if if we were trying to give some good advice to any of these professionals that are looking at this and thinking that actually we have nothing in place to manage risk, what would you say are the key key pitfalls that are currently being observed on single family offices um, that we, we would try and correct or at least try and ameliorate? So I think we've really touched on them, Zach, right? Again, uh, for the more modestly sized uh, offices that don't necessarily have the necessary wherewithal under their roofs to, to do a deep dive due diligence, be it from a financial, legal, or settlement perspective. Mm. Uh, um, for them to partner or to source transactions or to long list or to get advice from a set of professionals that are probably better equipped with doing it, um, and, you know, these things take time, right? It's not overnight, you come across a partner, you, you right. gain experience over time. Yeah. Them understanding your investment mandate, your risk return objectives, it, it goes back to financial management one one again, right? So, yeah. uh, and, and going beyond just the comfort of, you know, ABC is a trusted name. I've known him for 20 years. If he's bought a deal, it, it merits uh, participation, right? Yeah. You have to avoid the temptation of just leveraging relationships and on personal trust, taking the dive. Yeah, well, th th that's the whole basis of a Ponzi is that that's the whole point is to make that sort of network come alive so that people are, are you know, disarmed in terms of their 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 suspicions etc okay all right we'll leave it there and i'll i'll, I'll move on to, to taking more of a deep dive uh, discussing with stephen so stephen um thanks very much for joining us from the financial due diligence perspective this is really looking at um you know what we're seeing in the marketplace so the the current uh, financial due diligence trends and demands as well as particularly looking at the singapore single family office demand and here we're really looking at you know, um, do we have a throughput of clients? Do we do we see in the market space generally uh, single family offices um, trying to uh, take advantage of some of the sort of uh, due diligence processes that you at KPMG and your your outfit can bring to bear? And just giving an idea of, of how the market is is shaping in this space. Yeah, thanks, Zach. That's a <clears throat> that's a very good question. I think um, the way I look at it is comparing family offices to um, institutional LPs and their approach. Um, as part of my practice, I advise uh, funds that take in institutional capital. Um, and it's not uncommon um, to see quite extensive due diligence questionnaires and due, due diligence processes um, being instigated by counsel acting for those LPs. Um, I'm only brought in on the, on the tax side, but usually we work with um, fund formation counsel to respond to those questions. Um, I have only rarely seen it done on uh, the single family office yeah. side. 
Yeah. Um, and it has been fairly rudimentary in terms of the, the requests that we see. Yeah, I, I suspect that that's probably the case industry-wide. What you're seeing is probably repeated everywhere else. That for the single family office at the, the, the non sort of sub 500 million level, which is the majority, um, they're probably not, they're not relying on uh, direct due diligence. They're working their the sort of uh, network that they're connected to. When I look at the difference in terms of the private equity growth or the demand for this, um, do, do you see a difference in, in, in the, the risk evaluation of a direct equity investment in, let's say, a, a trading entity as against an indirect fund investment, maybe a feeder fund or, or otherwise? Do you see that there is different levels of risk when you're, when you're trying to evaluate each opportunity? Absolutely, absolutely. So with a, uh, with a fund opportunity, you're more than likely going to be uh, investing into a regulated structure uh, and a structure that has uh, third parties involved in its setup and administration. And Mitten referred to some of the key players, fund administrators, custodians, lawyers, auditors. Um, so if you can establish the appointment and ongoing participation of those third parties, that takes you a long way in addition to establishing that the fund vehicle is appropriately regulated and remains compliant. Mm -hmm. um, an investment into a uh, direct PE opportunity into a trading business is a completely different proposition. Um, in addition to the risk of outright fraud, mm -hmm. you have the risk of um, wastage. Um, so you may have a, a founder who decides to pay themselves more than they said they would in the business plan. Is that fraud? Probably not, but it's certainly going to bite into your returns. Hmm. And so our due diligence process um, is, is essentially the same. Right. But if we're looking at it from the you know, single family office that's being offered a, a unique opportunity in a trading entity, hmm. um, what we're, are we saying this, that that should be a little bit more heightened. There should be pause for thought on that type of investment as against, let's say a Cayman fund, where you've got all the array of the, the usual sort of suspects and custodian, et cetera, um, being put in place. Is that, is that what we're saying that they should, they should be cognizant of the, the different risk levels that are being presented? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you can, um, you can reduce some of that risk um, going into a direct opportunity and it's not uncommon for, um, a portfolio company, investee company, to be required to provide audited financial statements. Mm. Um, but audit is always ex post, right? You're not going to yeah. catch things in real time. Yeah. Uh, information rights are very common, um, as you would know, given to, to investors. But how often do we see clients exercising those information rights, going in and kicking the tyres um, of one of these portfolio companies? Mm. Sell them. Uh, I suppose the, the level of equity acquisition is going to make a difference. If it's a small stake, probably there's no, there's no point. They're, they're probably having a punt at that point. But if it's a takeover, then that's quite a different proposition. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess there is, there is some opportunity um, from time to time for family offices to, to club together Mm. Uh, and uh, socialise those costs amongst the cohort of investors that go directly. Mm. Um, family offices, depending on their relationship, may also be able to uh, gain some insight or some comfort from 
the due diligence and monitoring undertaken by a, um, uh, a large VC, but mm. there is always a danger in this process of relying upon the work of others unless you've actually verified how extensive yeah. that work is. So the last thing on the fund side, should we be particularly concerned of feeder funds as against having a, just a, a singular fund? Is that, is that in any way seen as a more um, challenging proposition in, in terms of due diligence? Yeah, so potentially, um, and I would say in addition to, to feeder funds, you've also got um, what I call club deals. So yeah. you may have a Singapore company, Cayman company, where five or six single family offices pile in. That's not a fund because it's not an externally managed structure, but it yeah. more or less is set up to facilitate that single investment. Um, unlikely to be regulated, unlikely to be audited, yeah. Uh, and your one additional degree of separation from the actual deployment of your capital. So that is that creates additional risk. Yeah. Uh, feeder funds, like the ones that were used in, in, in Madoff, the third-party managed structures, yeah. add a layer of abstraction, you're even, even further removed from yeah. where your capital is deployed. Yeah. Um, but also um, there's a layer of, additional layer of credibility that's being applied to the structure, mm. um, which as an investor, you should feel entitled to stress test. Yeah, yeah. But I think looking at the due diligence process itself, just going a little bit more, more deeper into this, um, there are going to be sort of red flags that come up. And I, I'm going to list a number of red flags that typically come up and we, we can walk through some of them. Um, the straight line income capital growth, so too good to be true. That, that tends to be a recurring theme all the time, and it's probably forever after, right? And that's, that's part of the attraction. No regulatory oversight, which you mentioned. Accounting irregularities, if we're doing it on a desktop basis. Uh, poor financial governance, so CFO turnover, external audit changes. Poor administrative governance, no functioning board of directors, everything's run out of the CEO's office, no effective oversight adverse background checks, and then any, if there's any others. Now, the reason why I list these red flags is just for us to, to, to kind of pick out um, which ones are would be captured in a standardized due diligence process and which would, need, would be more colorful <laughs> and would require us to, to get a bit more professionals involved. So just to give an idea of what can be expected on a, on a, a normal due diligence process when we're looking at some of these private equity deals. Yeah, again, it depends if you're going into a regulated structure or if you're not. So mm -hmm. if you're going into a regulated structure with those third parties that, that I mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, it's not difficult to verify uh, A, their appointment and B, the regulatory status of the, the entity or the manager. You can get a certificate of good standing um, for a Cayman entity. Um, obviously, you can get one in Singapore and you can pull out a biz file and see if a Singapore company has an auditor appointed. Mm. Um, so that's, that's very basic, simple desktop um, investor led due diligence that frankly mm. doesn't require a whole bunch of expensive experts. Um, but more than that, the whole, the whole posture of embarking on a due diligence process, um, I think, um, uh, will help to provide some verification that you're not investing into something that's an outright fraud. Because right. as soon as you adopt that posture, then um, the promoter of something that's an outright scheme is going to be uh, telling you the opportunities passed you by, would be my guess. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of the 
accounting irregularities. What are we looking for here? I mean, what's the telltales that, you know, typically what would we find that say, ah, these guys are, are booking sort of revenue before it's actually been in, been, been received as it were, or they're booking expenses into other, other um, accounting periods. What, what are we looking for on irregularities? Because people will be interested in listening to this as to what is an obvious red flag. I know that straight line, you know, exponential sort of returns is definitely a red flag. But when we're looking at it more granularly at the accounts level, what do we tend to find that says this is something we need to look at more closely? Yeah, so fundamentally, the, the audit process is about verification of existence and valuation. Mm. And that's in terms of revenue and expense items and assets and liabilities. Um, so assets that are, are carried at a high value, that are illiquid, that are being constantly revalued, um, that mm. would be something you would want to um, understand the audit methodology. And, and I checked with some of the partners in our firm and they do get questions from LPs and funds about the, about the audit methodology. Right. Uh, and, and they have even been asked to prove that they are, or verify rather, that they, they've been validly appointed, continue mm. to be appointed. Mm. Um, and then it, it's, it's other things um, around, you know, revenue items as well. Overstatement, understatement of expenses and other costs items. Right, right. Do we actually get involved in looking at the the management team, particularly the CFOs, and, and looking at whether or not we've got a high turnover of CFOs on on the particular opportunity? Is it is it something that's standard? And and how how the hell would we do that if you, in practice? How do we find out that they've they've had problems with their their internal controls? Yeah, so that's that's not going to fall into the bucket of financial due diligence, but certainly that's a pertinent um, thing to watch out for. Um, you know, particularly in those key functions where there is, if not strictly personal liability, there's certainly reputational damage for the individual who's been sitting on that seat mm. um, if if things aren't the way they should be. Mm. Um, one thing I would add there, Zach, is that um, possibly a red flag, possibly not, but certainly a risk area is uh, professionalism and diversity in terms of board composition. Mm, okay. so if you have a vehicle that has that is only run by the one promoter, yeah. question that, yeah. run by the one promoter and somebody with no professional experience yeah. or immediate family members, I'd be thinking twice about that but as soon as you start seeing uh, bona fide um, independent third parties particularly um, third parties who are there because they have some other connection with the structure such as they're a fund administrator mm. that usually you can usually take a bit of comfort from that because right. those guys are going to, going to be ringing alarms if they yeah. if something's awry i suppose the other bit is if we see the auditor changing all the time would that be a red flag so if you've got a bunch of accounts going back a number of years and you're, you're, you're looking through that. Uh, if you see the auditor changing quite often, would that be a red flag? Um, yes and no. Um, I would probably say the, the red flag there would be a long delay in the delivery of audited financial statements. Right, uh, right. Typically it would be if an auditor is retired mm. um, because they're not comfortable, they're about to qualify the accounts, it's not mm. 
typically a simple matter to go and find someone else who's happy to sign off. I see, right, right. Unless they're uh, not up to scratch. Yeah. But what about the opposite? You've got the same auditor, which is potentially not at your scale, but, you know, maybe over a corner shop, and they've been on it forever. Would that be a red flag? Because I think, wasn't that the case in, in Madoff? He had this same auditor the whole time, or maybe there's some of the other cases. Yeah, I can't, I, I can't say that's a red flag. Um, yeah. But I know actually that is one, one thing that not just in this context, but broadly is being looked at in terms of order rotation and having fresh eyes. Yeah, yeah. Structures right, right. I think finally on the adverse background checks, how much do we actually look into the previous history of, of the, the promoters or the, 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 the sort of management team that, that's pre-offered as the professionals that are managing this? Do we actually look into their backgrounds and how far do we go? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's not something that we're asked to do much, if at all. Um, but I think it's a it's it's well worth the spend, um, even if it's an allocation of time from the investor side to do a little bit of desktop due diligence, have someone run a basic KYC check, mm. and if you want to dig a little bit deeper, there are um, providers and not necessarily KBMG, but there's providers who, are, who will do reputation due diligence. Mm. Um, and really, at the end of the day, it's about, you know, as, as Mitten said, in terms of the financial investing, this stuff is not rocket science. It's, yeah. it's basic. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it's weighted by reference to how much capital you're deploying. You take a pragmatic approach. Mm. This is not always a um, six-figure proposition. Sometimes mm. it can be done much more efficiently, but mm. flush out those main red flags that you've identified there. Yeah, I mean, what I was thinking about in this context is a bit like what the revenue do in investigations. They'll look at uh, unexplained wealth. So we have a relatively young guy who doesn't have much of a track record because he hasn't been on the planet very long, but yet he has you know flashy cars and has an Instagram account with flashy watches and living the life, but it doesn't actually stack up as to how on earth did you get all of this wealth? I think some of that, in retrospect, when you look back at some of these obvious Ponzi schemes, the, the, the typology is always the same. They're going to take it in, start buying houses, start you know, lavishly living and all the rest. It's all obvious and it's all public in many cases. But I don't, you know, some of those checks, that what you're saying is not something that's typically done. So it's not, we're not looking at the obvious in many, in many respects. Yeah. And I'll add to that, Zach, um, some asset classes are more, susceptible to abuse in this manner than yeah. others. I mean, I, I think if I'm not going to pick on crypto, but crypto is classically something that not many people really understand very well. Yeah. There's yeah. many clients I have who can pull out the code on GitHub and explain or verify that something is actually a real project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's that, where there's that level of disconnect between what actually makes sense, what can be understood and digested by an investor Mm. That's where you may need a little bit of more technical assistance in terms of the, the proposed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Structure. Okay. All right. I think we'll leave it there and then we'll, we'll transition, discuss if we've got ourselves into a, a position where we've actually got a, um, a financial fraud that has occurred. Uh, we are a single family office and, and looking at the legal consequences of that. And, and for this, I, I invite um, David to, to, to help me to run through some of these consequences. Before we do that, though, I just want to explain the concept of a net winner and a net loser, because it, it occurs quite a lot in the cases that deal with some of these 
you know, sort of Ponzi schemes and financial frauds. And really what they're getting at here is this, and this is a, a bog standard diagram of a typical family office where it's held in a trust. So you have your trustee beneficiaries and you have your various power, power holders, potentially settlor and protectors. Then we've got the underlying company through which the investments are made and the directors of that. And then the underlying PE fund. Now, what they mean by a net winner is that in effect, uh, payments were received during the currency of the, the fraud and actually you could have a, a good return on your, your investment. And so you're a net winner. And when it's later discovered, um, you, the, the worry there is, well, if I'm a net winner, you know, are, we, are we gonna have to effectively divest some of this net winnings from what was otherwise a, a simple fraud? So there was no actual business underlying any of this. And then the reverse is a net loser. And so the, here the trust sat on top of a company and we've, we've not had any return. And that tends to be the, the situation of most of these schemes is that we have net losers where they've invested and they're unlikely to recover much uh, in the insolvency proceeding. And so there are different angles to why this is important from the analytical context when I'm looking at the legal consequences. But that's what we mean by a net winner. I've been able to get uh, my funds and it was a great return uh, as, as long as it lasted and then it went bust. And then the others where I've invested in and I've not got any return on the investment. And so I am a net loser. Now, looking at the net winners, there is a, a range of, of um, uh, remedies and, and rights uh, under the insolvency proceedings to uh, try to claw back some of these net winnings, right? And this is always the worry for any of the investors and it would be for a single family office that actually gets embroiled in any of this, one of the principal worries would be, well, are we going to have to divest any of this money back into the insolvency? And so I'll run, uh, we, we don't have time for all of these, but I'll run through all the principal um, remedies. It's not exhaustive of what could, could be met. So we'd have voidable preferences, undervalued disposal, fraudulent trading, knowing receipt, unjust enrichment, conspiracy, and then constructive trusts. Now, I list all of this because I wanted to, to chat through with you, David, in terms of the, um, the, the overview of all of these remedies seems to be a concentration of time on the period immediately running up to the insolvency. And so some of these statutory remedies of voidable preference and undervalued disposals, and then the more sort of prosaic remedies that are at law rather than statutory driven. Um, which look at the involvement of the investor in the, the, um, the, the scheme that's gone bust. And I just want to invite you to, to comment on any of these remedies where we actually find that, um, you know, uh, the investor can get into difficulties on a clawback because of the amount of, uh, let's say, knowledge that they have or the way in which they've interfaced with the investment and, and what we see typically in this sort of scenario. Yes, in, indeed. The, um, the, the primary aim in all of this is, of course, the desire to have a, an insolvency which distributes the net assets of the company on a pari passu basis. That's the goal in almost yeah. all insolvency proceedings. And that pari passu basis does require uh, the, the recovery of uh, some of those uh, prior payments that you just mentioned. And you've got this list uh, that you do, you just got uh, mentioned just now, you've got um, a series of payments which will um, be recoverable in certain periods before the insolvency has taken effect. Somebody's got to prove that the company went insolvent on a particular date. Yeah, and that that itself can be an issue. Yeah. And there are different uh, 
requirements in different places, who's got the burden of uh, proving that. Uh, uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's the recipient, sometimes it's the uh, liquidator if, if, if it's a company. Mm. And of course, do, do, do remember, or pro probably not too important in this environment, is that the rules are different for a personal bankruptcy Mm. A corporate insolvency. Mm. Uh, I mean that 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 could arise uh, in some of these circumstances. Most of the time, you're talking a, a, a corporate situation, mm. and and there are differences as well. I mean, some some systems uh, for very early periods before the insolvency, it doesn't have to be a connected transaction. Mm. A longer period is allowed for connected transactions. And yeah. who is a connected person with the company? Will it be all of the obvious uh, suspects and most yeah. usually it will be one of the investors will be connected and if you've got a slightly longer period mm. so uh, th those uh, re recovery items which would be as, as you've indicated their avoidable preference under undervalued transactions mm. uh, they tend to lead to a series of other opportunities uh, because once you can say that the uh, there is a right of recovery, mm. you could then be into other remedies, um, at which you've in indicated that, uh, knowing receipt on just enrichment, constructive mm. trust, mm. Uh, to try to recover uh, the net. Is, it, as always, it's one thing to have a right of recovery, it's another thing to actually recover. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, is that as you go down the list, it gets more serious. Um, it, the, the, the case law tends to to adjust and say, well, how much of your involvement in the scheme will give an idea for your exposure to some of these remedies on the clawback? And so it gets to the point where you look at the, the whole thrust of us undertaking due diligence to, to, to warn against investing into a financial fraud. The more we know, the, the, the worse it gets in terms of if it goes wrong, potentially in a, in a round way. So that if you have an inkling or if the documents are, are revealing that there is something that's amiss, then you're more on notice than, than someone who, who just was taking a recommendation by a professional advisor and just getting on with it. Because that's when you should be more concerned that actually you're gonna potentially be looked at by the insolvency practitioners after the event, because clearly something was amiss. Yes, but I think we have to, um, first of all, distinguish between the due diligence uh, before you go into the into the investment mm. and uh, information you may glean in the course yeah. of, 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 of receiving uh, uh, benefits from it. Mm. Um, I'm trying to speak as broadly as I can there. Um, they are far, far better not to go into something that's going to fail. Yes, yeah. Yeah, there's no uh, possible advantage in, in holding off yeah. uh, your initial due, due diligence. Yeah, it, it would be um, unusual, I would say, that what, once these funds start operating, that 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 the 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 average investor would 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 be alerted. Yeah, yeah, something very specific that's wrong because yeah. Far and away, and our other colleagues on, on, on the panel will know better than I do. By far and away, the biggest problem will be no information. Yeah, coming yeah, exactly. Yeah, a lack of reports and such, yeah. which, which of course alert you not so much that something uh, that you might receive is um, has, has got a problem with it. Is you're not going to receive anything. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think that's interesting because some of the cases, recent cases on unjust enrichment, the courts take the view that there is a legitimate expectation that you'll get a return on the contract on what you agreed or the investment that you made and that they will protect that. They won't easily unravel that um, because the underlying edifice of all of this was a fraud. Yeah, I, well, somebody's for unjust enrichment, uh, somebody's got to prove it's unjust. Right. <laughs> and that's you so so much is 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 written about this topic, and it becomes uh, almost mind bending because it's so confusing. Hmm. But it's actually quite a simple set of concepts, and the the unjust element is often not there simply because you do have a contract which right. gives you an entitlement, and that entitlement has been triggered. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's certainly the the, the sort of Caribbean Cayman approach, BBI approach. When these have come out and a lot of the case law in this area is um it, it has given rise because of things like madoff and and uh, latterly um stanford so we've, we've got a lot of case law at privy council level dealing with this and they tend to respect the fact that you are a a sort of bona fide investor and you didn't have a clue what was going on and so they they don't easily try and unravel that because underlying it all was a was a fraud i think it's different approaches maybe in the us to this because i think they they take presumptions and I think there's some developments in Canadian law where if it's too good to be true, then that should alert you. Um, but certainly that's not been the position in, in the, the Caribbean uh, courts and the Privy Council's decisions dealing with this. They have tended to protect and respect the fact that you are contractually entitled to the um, to the distributions that you've received. Yeah, I, I think the too good to be true is is, is much easier said than, than, than actually dealt with. Mm. What, what is too good to be true in, in, in this environment? Mm. Um, uh, I, I, th I think Stephen quite quite rightly mentioned earlier about the investments in, in crypto-related yeah. funds mm. uh, and, and quite rightly indicated that most of the people in, is going into these things don't really understand what on earth it's all about. Yeah. Um, but e e equally... Um, you know, there, there was a recent uh, failure, wasn't there, of, of a fund, uh, I think it was based in the States, in which it was um, taking in investments, but lending um, uh, uh, cryptocurrencies. Right. And this um, fund was um, promoting itself with very high returns. It was saying that could you get you to somewhere around 17, 18% yeah. on, on, on funds invested. Yeah. Well, Two things come from that, don't they? First of all, um, it, it, however sophisticated and complicated crypto is, most of the money losing is same old, same old. Yeah. <laughs> because you know, you, you, to, to, to get a return of that size at a time when average interest rates, I mean, they may have gone up a little bit in the past six months, but they were rock bottom. Um, yeah. You get something like that, that, that in itself isn't a red flag of a fraud, but it's 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 a it's a red flag surely of, of high risk. Yeah, yeah. But we have I mean, a lot. Yeah. I was going to say, link. How do you link that? How do you go from there to too good to be true? Hmm. So in the biggest complaint, you know, you, you can go through a whole series of these things. Yeah. Where there's been uh, a substantial promises made. Hmm. It, I, I would say it's not so much a a, a, a red flag of it, it's bound to be a fraud. Yeah. It, it's, it's a red flag of something that's very, very high risk, and you've got a, um, a dreamer of an investment manager. Yeah, yeah. 
he just look at Barlow Clouds all those years ago. They, they mm. were offering very high rates. Mm. Trust. So uh, I think it's quite a difficult thing. The um, too good to be true. Yeah, and it, it doesn't figure very very much in, in terms of the cases. I know I mentioned some of these Canadian, the developing Canadian cases. There was one, I think it's the, the sort of Whitfield or uh, Whitman case, where they basically the judge is saying you, you conducted no due diligence. It was a high rate, so I'm assuming that you knew that there was something wrong here. But I don't know if we'll see that as a general approach going forward. I, who knows? There's going to be more and more cases as we, you know, that's just life. So people will take a pop at this. And we'll have to yeah. see how it develops. But certainly from a Canadian perspective, there is that movement towards, but if too too good to be true, then that should be tainting you as an investor into this, unless you can prove otherwise. And I, I, I'm not saying that that's the approach that will be adopted in the Caribbean, et cetera, but there are some of these cases circulating where there may be a, a counter to this that you need to take a better care of, you know, uh, things that are ostensibly um, a high rate of return. Anyway, in terms of the net losers now this is where we we've, the family office is invested in and it's lost and it's not it's part of the insolvency we'll see how much we recover from that now this will always give rise to a a review of everybody's role in the run-up to this and during during the currency of the the investment itself and so i'll just invite us to to run through looking at it from the beneficiary's perspective or from from the aggrieved party's perspective the liability scope that could be um, uh, engendered by the trustee, by investment power holders, by the underlying company directors, and I mean these individuals here. And then later on, we can discuss third-party investment advisors. But just, just running through, um, generally, if it goes wrong, what would it, what would it look like in terms of the unfolding review of everybody's role and, and how they will, um, they will sit? Certainly. Yes, the, um, we just have to recognise that and, and any of these parties got to recognise it. If there's been a significant loss, those that consider themselves to have lost will be looking for somebody to compensate them yeah. for that loss. Yeah. Um, so e each and every one of these will be uh, one way or the other in the firing line. Mm. Uh, but by, by the same token, they can protect themselves uh, to, 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 to quite a large degree, mm. um, most effectively by just doing their job properly. Yes. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you go from the bottom upwards, um, you know, third-party investment advisors, as, as just about everybody knows, it's, it, it's, it's a pretty barren place to be to try to sue an investment advisor for poor performance. Mm. I think there have been tiniest handful of cases, um, and, and again, I, I speak outside of America, but in the rest of our sort of common, common law, commonwealth connected world, mm. it's been jolly difficult to, to bring uh, claims for uh, effectively for negligence mm. against an investment advisor. Uh, give, given the range of opportunities open to them, the, the, the range of possible factors which are brought into account, Mm. And of course, defining the obligation that they owe. You know, what, mm. what did they promise? Mm. Um, you may have mechanical areas that you can complain about whether they, they have gone outside of the investment criteria. Mm. And it's a question of whether the arrangements with them did in fact prohibit them from going outside. Mm. 
Mm. If you then move up the list, because I've deliberately done this upside down, uh, Zach, yes. uh, you move up the list because of what I just said then, that uh, perhaps then there is an obligation on those that enter into these arrangements yes. to make sure that they are sufficiently clear and protective of the investor. Mm. So, and, and, and that's going to be quite difficult because it, it, most of this is standard form documentation. Yeah. Most of it is extraordinarily opaque uh, and, and, and long-winded. Mm. Uh, and, and you're back to the stuff that everybody's de dealt with at university about that kind of documentation. Mm. Uh, there's protection for, for, for the man in the street usually, but there's very little protection for the so-called sophisticated investor. Mm, mm. In, this, in this environment, if you, if you sign up, you've committed, no matter how much of the you know, 200 pages you didn't read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but if, but if, if you haven't read it, then that's going to become a big issue. Yeah, and certainly from the underlying company, if you've got direct -to service agreements with the usual indemnity provisions, or at least the exoneration provisions, um, anything up to fraud, I suspect, will be will be covered. Yeah, sometimes difficult in most places to actually formally exonerate. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's done indirectly through an indemnity provision, yeah. which which is uh, somewhat tighter than what you can do at the trustee level. Mm. There are, there are limits because statutory obligations to provide a certain level of yeah. uh, in, uh, of service provision. Yeah, and you, you can't get out of that. That's yeah. that's, not, that's usually non-negotiable. Mm. But it's the and, and and bringing claims against those directors that be brought by the company against the directors. Um, what those that have lost will be looking for is somebody to pay them back. Yeah, and inevitably they're looking for a deep pocket. Yeah, and when it comes to professionals, they're either looking for an institution. Yeah, or they're looking for a, an an insured professional yeah and i think this this brings up an issue that we've, we've we've been sort of tackling recently which is around some of these directors um may well be um connected to the the the, the sort of licensed trust company and so the issue is notwithstanding the the trust may contain the standardized bartlett provision to to help the trustee to avoid some of this risk does does that actually fail because there is this connection between the two the trustee and the directors are effectively the one person doesn't that go back to the um, service obligation that was assumed mm, yeah. when the fiduciary company, when the trust company, set the arrangement up? Yeah. And, they, and, 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 and this is a developing area. It's, it's yes. something I have spoken about over the years. Yeah. But these uh, relationships are much more complex than uh, sometimes uh, understood to be. Yes, you may, you haven't, haven't yet talked about the trustee, but the trustee can protect itself at a certain level. Mm. But that, not so much the trustee, but the trust company yeah. may well be providing other services. Yeah. It's presumably providing them not so much to beneficiaries, but to the underlying companies. Yeah, exactly. So is there a proper, what is the relationship between the trust company in its big umbrella, which mm. is providing directors at the corporate level? Yeah. What is the obligation to the company? Yeah. Is, is there some obligation to provide um, suitable directors? Mm. Is there an obligation to oversee those directors? Are you assuring 
by implication that those directors will be doing a proper job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in many cases, the trustee may be doing it for AML purposes, that they want to have um, coverage of what's going on at the company level in order to stay uh, compliant. Well, that, that is exactly the, the problem. There's, I wrote an article about 20 odd years ago called uh, you know, sort of directed trusts and the problem of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. It's really difficult for the trustee to avoid lots of liability if, mm. it, if it knows things are going horribly wrong. Mm. I think, finally on this, in terms of the power holders, obviously some of them, depending on the terms of the trust, um, some of the power holders will obviously have, may have um, power to appoint and remove the, the directors of the underlying company. The question is whether or not, um, uh, and you know, as a matter of construction, that then brings them into having to have some obligation to appoint and remove directors that are competent and the terms on which they are appointed and removed. I, I know it's not an area that's necessarily been looked at um, particularly, but it could be something that comes up in the future more often where we have power holders that do have direct rights to um, you know, effectively nominate the executive team on these family offices. Yes, um, your, your average Bartlett or anti-Bartlett clause says that the trustee can leave the management of the company to the board and not yeah. to interfere. Mm. Um, does that necessarily absolve the trustee from having to worry about who's actually on that board? Mm. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that the average clause does that. Well, it doesn't cover a power holder because it's addressing the trustee. Yeah, yes, but it's a slightly different question, isn't it? Mm. It's your, your question, uh, and, and I think, it's, if I may say, it's a very good one because uh, you know, everybody's looking for gaps in this, this, this modern-day shield after the yeah. Hong Kong decision. Yeah. But does the average anti-Bartlett clause say to the trustee, you don't have to worry about who is on the board? Is, is, yeah. is it giving you the same? Do you just take the board as is, and that's the end of it? I'm yeah. not entirely sure that it does. I mean, it's not the same as Vista in the BVI. Yeah, yeah. Vista prevents the trustee from using its power to interfere with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who is on well, that? well, there's there's developing case law in in Singapore, I think, on on these points. So we'll, we'll have to see how how that all pans out. But it's it's the the whole array. I think the point for everyone viewing this is this. If it goes wrong, there's going to be a review of everybody's position on this, and everyone's going to be looking very carefully at where are the deep pockets, where are the, the, the good covenants when it comes to recovering some of this, particularly if you know, we've got a complete bust Ponzi scheme underneath and we're not going to recover anything. So everyone's role will be looked at individually, and the trustee um, will be looked at if it's a licensed trust company because they are insured, and that's, that's going to be a source that people will be looking at um, to, to try and make recovery. Okay, so I think that's a, that's a bad situation <laughs> to end up in. I think the, the better way of looking at this is what are the, the takeaway points in terms of best practice to try and avoid getting in there in the first place um, going forward. And I've listed a few best practices here. So the single family office should at minimum have an effective governance and control framework. That means that they've actually looking at this as a potential area of loss to the family office. And in that, they have a private equity due diligence protocol. So the things that they should look at to try and enforce directly and maybe not rely on their 
confidence network of, of providers. Um, they should perhaps look at the invoking the due diligence process, the direct due diligence process, and perhaps Stephen can mention some of the costs involved in this thing on a, on a case by case basis. And then they should effectively uh, monitor what they've invested in um, going forward to, to, to see whether or not all is in, in order. And then just any other thoughts. But I, I, I list these out and I, I, I invite David, just from your perspective, um, the, the crux of it all comes down to the quality of the individuals involved in the single family office investment environment and how effective the, the, the trust, if you have one above that, how effective that is being effectively uh, enforced and adhered to going forward. Is, is that basically what we're, what we're saying is that if you're trying to provide some level of protection for this, it all comes down to the quality of people involved and the framework, the control framework through which they operate. Yes, um, I, I look at this from, from a slightly different position that, you know, I, I'm not as involved directly in these arrangements such as Mitten and Stephen are. They're directly involved in all of these transactions. I, I, I come into it at a different place, but I always liken these investments um, to saying, well, you're, you're, what you're doing is you're buying a, um, a minority interest in a, in a private company. You're not even getting control. You're buying a minority interest in a, in a private company. And um, typically we do a fraction of the due diligence than we would if you were buying a, 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 a piece of a company at one, in an ordinary commercial situation. You know, if you look at the, in, in the books, you know, buying the shares of a private company, they're vast and the, the checklists are vast. Mm. And the kind of things that you should do before you enter into these things. Um, we, we don't, because of this, it's, it's, it's what I call the private client bias. Um, if you do things wearing a commercial hat and you, you go to your sort of commercial law firm, your chartered accountants, and you're saying, well, I've, I've got this, this local company around the corner, I'd like to uh, take it over, or I want to make an offer. Mm. Uh, everybody puts on a different hat. But when it comes to these investments, it's a very different state of affairs. And I know to do the due diligence that you would do in an ordinary commercial situation is, is, is pro pro probably just not feasible mm. in these cases. It's just not going to be cost effective and so on. Mm. But you have to recognize there is a massive difference between the two processes for doing something which economically is not a lot different. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe Stephen, you could speak to the direct due diligence process. Uh, how long would that take? And, and you know, what, what's actually, you know, is it a high high touch cost or is it modest or what, what's involved in all of this? Because if if the SFOs are not even looking at it, probably they don't realize that these things are available. Yeah, it very much depends, Zach, um, on the size of the business and also um, where it is in terms of its funding rounds. So if you're doing a DD on a mature business with a trading history, um, proper accounting records, it should be fairly straightforward. It should be a desktop, mostly review. Um, whereas if you're doing a due diligence on um, a couple of founders who have a, an idea for a startup, then clearly most of your time and effort is going to be focused on the promoters themselves and validating the, the concept and idea they want to take to market. 
Mm. I think one one point that I would like to make though is that um, it's best practice, good practice for not just the family office investors, but also the investee companies themselves to get an early taste of what real due diligence looks like. Because if you've got uh, an early stage company that's um, start outs fairly scrappy as most of them do, um, if they scale and become successful, there'll come a time where the um, the bigger institutions will pitch up and they, they will have um, a whole long list of demands. And if the investee company hasn't had a, an inkling of what systems and processes they need to get in place from the outset, it's a bit difficult to um, put that back together. Right, right, right. Okay. Mitten, from your perspective, do you, you, I think we discussed earlier that there, there doesn't seem to be much of a, um, a framework in place for the SFOs to, to adequately manage their, their risk when they're doing this. Would you, would you endorse that they should actually have some protocols or at least some approach on the books to manage the risk um, going forward and that someone should take responsibility for this? No, um, but of course, Zach, um, I, I think, you know, we deliberated a fair bit on whether for the uh, SFOs as a whole, private markets continues to be an emerging area of relevance or not, so long as there's any allocation to the space. Um, and uh, do keep in mind that we're coming off a changing world order, right? Uh, liquidity is going to tighten. It's not going to be as freely available as before. And a lot of buy-side behavior, as we traditionally know, is, is driven by what sales side focus you get, right? And uh, I see capital seeking companies uh, casting their nets wider in terms of diversifying their sources of fund uh, mm -hmm. funding. Um, intermediaries whose livelihood depends on getting capital from the buy, from the buy, from the sales side from the buy side to the sales side, mm -hmm. um, they're gonna go down the sort of uh, food chain, if I may, uh, in terms of capital providers. So a lot of these SFOs, irrespective of their shape, size, prior sort of uh, focus on the private space, mm. are going to feel a lot more self-important with traditional sales chasing happening. Right, right. And uh, so to my mind, irrespective of what gazing in the crystal ball on the back of some of these surveys might say, it is a pertinent area because they'll see more conversations and it may soon become a problem of plenty in terms of the pipelines that they start witnessing. Mm. So definitely uh, going back to a very pertinent point David just made a while ago, a lot of it boils down to the commercials, right? Whether the cost benefit makes uh, yeah. sense at the end of the day. Yeah. So it's in the context of the stake that you're taking, the stage of the capital cycle that the company is in. If you're early stage and you happen to be co-investing, um, I mean, just the due diligence around the partner with whom you're co-investing and whether you can rely on their level of due diligence, et cetera, is one point. If it's a more significant stake and cost benefit justifies, by all means, look out for a specialist firm and they're more than you can shake a stick at mm. uh, in, in terms of supporting you with a deeper sort of drill down basis, the numbers that you have access to. Mm. If it's more advanced in the capital cycle, you're talking pre-IPO, late stage opportunities, you will rarely have access to management. You, you'll have to rely on information that your access partners yeah, are yeah. sort of bringing your way. So. Yeah. Definitely, uh, you know, if you don't have the wherewithal internally, uh, 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 an astute approach to selecting the partners you work with, that in itself is a critical due diligence. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if we are going to be moving into recessionary times, then this is this tends to be Ponzi season. So it tends to surface a lot of Ponzi schemes. I think when we had the last in 2008, 
um, four of the major Ponzi schemes surfaced in the US in the space of one year, and that included Madoff. So this, this tends to be the point, the point in time when you find out what's been going on for, for the past few years under the surface. So we will have to see. Okay, I think we'll we'll leave it there um, today. Um, we've got a, a couple of questions. Um, one's uh, usually one, what's the cost basis points you would see on AUM basis for SFO above 500 million? I think that's that's probably a question for you, Mitton, probably um, offline. Uh, which recent case Singapore that is related to anti-Bartlett clauses? Well, this is the uh, the current case that's been making its way through the courts involving Credit Suisse. Okay, those are the the, um, the the two questions. I think we can wrap it up happily today. Um, just leaves me to thank very much, Mitun, uh, Stephen, and of course David for helping very much contribute to this. And uh, thank you for everyone that spent time viewing this. And obviously, the, the recording as well as the slides will be made available um, in due course. So. Thanks very much and uh, hope you have a, a great day ahead. Thank you guys.